the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 33, Medieval Feudalism. Feudalism in Europe was a popular means by which a nation could be governed on both a national and localised level through a form of agreement between the monarch or the ruling class and the local chiefs and governors. It was a popular method of political organisation between the 10th and 13th centuries and particularly in England and France. Often, Localised rule would be in the hands of a nobleman who was granted his lands by the monarch, typically a king, who allowed this arrangement after the nobleman swore an oath of fealty to the king by pledging support to him, for example, militarily, should the king need to form an army. Feudalism generally is not a uniform manner by which kings ruled their country. In fact, it can vary from kingdom to kingdom, but often the individual arrangements were strict and sealed in writing, and the term feudalism refers to the style of governance, where the nobleman swears an oath of fealty to their king rather than the specific rules. So it is quite a general term that we like to apply to this style of governance retrospectively. Where the term feudalism can somewhat be quite complex, it is also to do with the fact that local lords themselves could apply the same kind of arrangement to a subservient freeman who would be entrusted to manage their land holdings in return for protection and money. The freeman might then be obliged to manage the land well enough to return a supplement of produce for the landlord. It is all for these reasons that feudalism is hard to definitively describe and should be viewed more as a concept. For us, the History of the World podcast community, we can travel back in time to the days of the Roman Empire and see a similar initiative when the barbarian tribes were threatening the borderlands of the empire. When looking at the Goths and the Franks, for example, the late Roman Empire felt that it would be more beneficial to come to an agreement with some of these tribes as opposed to simply chasing them out of Roman territory. So an arrangement would be made where the local Germanic tribal leaders would be granted the run of the land with the promise of defending it from other Germanic tribes. Also, Romans could grant large estates or manors to individuals who would be offered protection, and therefore this could be described as a type of feudalism, despite it not being exactly like the medieval feudalism that historians frequently reference when speaking of medieval history. 
It can also be argued that feudalism is quite an organic state of affairs when empires become large and cannot be directly governed by the central state alone and that localised rulers loyal to the central state are necessary in order to keep distant provinces and counties within the larger realm. We can look at the Fengjian system of Zhou Dynasty China in the first millennium BCE as an example. The Fengjian system is frequently referred to as a feudal system. If we remember back to the Zhou Dynasty of China episodes from Volume 3, you may remember that we spoke of the first period of Zhou rule as the Western Zhou period, and the second and later period as the Eastern Zhou period. Essentially, the Eastern Zhou period represented a time when the Zhou dynasty was ruling in name only and it was the warlords of the realm who were truly in charge, not too dissimilar to the eventual outcome of the Merovingian rulers of the Frankish kingdoms under Carolingian rule or the Abbasid rulers of the Islamic empire under Turkish rule it can strongly be argued that the existence of Western Zhou feudalism is what caused Eastern Zhou emperors to have no power over their lords. In Western Zhou China, a system existed whereby the emperor, who was protected in his position due to him possessing the mandate of heaven, which was a spiritual approval of his individual status, devolved power to his regional lords. The regional lords often had a connection to the emperor, so they could be direct relatives or affiliated to important families within Zhou lands. These regional lords would in turn have trusted nobles, often referred to as the gentry, living within their region whose expectations were that they serve the regional lords. The gentry would employ peasant farmers to manage their lands and produce valuable surplus food for the benefit of the empire as a whole. This was a good and effective system of management, but over time it would become clear that the regional lords held too much ability to control their own fortunes, and this would cause them to become too wealthy and powerful to be controlled by the emperor which led to the collapse of Zhou authority and the beginning of the Eastern Zhou period. We should say at this point that this type of rule is only linked to European medieval period feudalism in terms of similarity only, and that the feudalism referred to by historians is often isolated to the European medieval period and was not referenced as such at the time but is more of a retrospective label for this style of governance that is very similar to the Fengjian system of Zhou Dynasty China. If we fast forward to the Merovingian Frankish kingdoms, we are already aware from our episodes on the Franks that the later Merovingian dynasty monarchs ruled in name only, and that the actual decision makers were the men known as the mayors of the palace. One such man was Charles Martel, who would be the effective ruler of the Frankish kingdoms during the 8th century. 
in order to help to fund his military campaigns, Charles Martel would sell off church property into the hands of private investors, who in turn would provide the support necessary to fund important aspects of the militia, not least of all the heavy cavalry, which would be a costly addition. The new landowners would pledge an oath of fealty to the monarch by swearing his services to him in return for the monarch's protection. The Frankish Emperor Charlemagne would continue to govern his empire in a similar vein, but over time we can see that the gift of a piece of land would be given in return for a number of different services that the vassal could give to the emperor. This could be providing the guarantee of military resources such as infantry to the emperor for a set number of days of the calendar year. This could be for providing the emperor with advice or counsel in dealing with matters of diplomacy or legal matters. This could also be in return for money to fund construction projects or for great ceremonies. So this notion of feudalism can be quite ambiguous or vague in its value for each party. So we should not look at it as a rigid system, but more of a hierarchical nature. Originally, this kind of agreement would stay true until the passing of the vassal or the lord, but after the lifetime of Charlemagne, it became more common for the vassal's position in the agreement to be passed down to his son, so that the trouble of a new agreement was not necessary. A great example of when the art of feudalism was exploited by a monarch for maximum gain was when Duke William II of Normandy, known to history as William the Conqueror, was planning to cross the English Channel and invade the Kingdom of England with a view to displacing the existing Anglo-Saxon dynasty and becoming the new king himself. William went to great lengths to gather together a huge and meaningful army that had to be transported across the Channel of Water at great expense to the Normans. The only way that he could possibly achieve such a monumental task was to pool the resources of Normandy and beyond. Any trusted nobleman that had any kind of wealth was invited to contribute their money, resources and expertise to Duke William's great combined army and highly ambitious operation. The return for such commitment would be a spoil of the lands of the new kingdom at the expense of the existing Anglo-Saxon lords and their families. However, the whole birth of the Norman duchy stemmed back from 150 years previous when the Viking raider Rollo was granted lands by the West Francian king, Charles the Simple, in return for protection of the Seine River from other Viking raids. The direction of feudalism depended greatly on so many different factors. It could hinge on how dependent a nation was on the requirement for vassalage in order to generate wealth, income and services, where otherwise it could have a healthy public system or a successful taxation system or a fast-paced and diverse mercantile sector. 
Should there be significant pressure on a lord or a king to generate resource from the feudal system, then he may have to impose more stringent rules on the agreement. This could become particularly relevant for the nobles who were employing the services of freemen to manage their agriculture. Some of these managers would lose their freedom and become part of a system of serfdom where they would be tied to the land that they managed, subservient to their landlord, and their descendants would be tied into the same obligation. It could be compared to slavery where individuals were sold from person to person, but with serfdom, the serf tended to become a part of the property of the manor's estate. The land that the overlord granted to the vassal, or in other words the land that the king granted to the local governor, or in other words the manor and its estate that the monarch would grant to the landowner, would often be referred to as a fief. A fief refers to a return for fealty. So to put it another way, If a vassal pledged an oath of fealty to his overlord, then the overlord would grant him a fief, which was often a holding or under the ownership of the vassal, who would then employ the services of a peasant farmer or a subtenant who may become a serf. So now we should be starting to get a feeling as to what a feudal system is and how it can be very ambiguous in its description. Further to this, we can also find that vassals swore oaths of fealties to more than one overlord, which may have even been a means to cement political alliances. So there could be quite a complex web of feudal lordships. Sometimes it could be possible for a vassal to have two lords who were enemies of one another. And this could be particularly difficult if a war broke out between the two lords. Therefore the vassal may declare one of his lords as a liege lord. In other words he would declare his primary allegiance to his liege lord. In practice. One of the best examples of feudalism in practice is with William the Conqueror in 1066 when he invaded the Kingdom of England. The act of invasion itself is quite an astonishing achievement when all of the circumstances are considered. The logistical side of the invasion is so considerable that the echoes of history have always made us subconsciously see the event as the mighty Normans defeating the lowly Anglo-Saxons. But this just isn't true. William's achievement should be acknowledged for its sheer brilliance. William successfully negotiated with the wealthy noblemen of the west of Europe in order to build up the considerable strength required to be able to make a large-scale invasion across a considerable channel of water against a firmly established national kingdom. The spoils of victory were the fertile lands of the Kingdom of England, 
for those vassals that William had enticed with the wealth of these new lands. When we look at the medieval feudalism, our minds tend to go straight to France and England as our best examples of feudalism in practice. This is where we find that the feudal system slowly leaks into every class of society with individuals finding that they are getting absorbed into a system that is a complex network of relationships built on tenuous promises. Vassals would promise resources to overlords in order to have their own interests protected. But these vassals would honour similar promises made to them by subtenants for the management of their interests, and in turn, these subtenants would employ the lower classes of society as the slave labour required to make the lands fruitful. When the system worked well, it would be very successful to the point where a considerable army of well-maintained heavy cavalry could be assembled at the demand from the overlord to his vassals, who would offer the services of their best individual heavy cavalry, which came to be known as the medieval knights. On the highest levels, should a vassal not honour the overlord by sticking to his side of the agreement, then this would need to be dealt with by a legal system specifically commissioned to arbitrate feudal agreements. In the emerging Holy Roman Empire, counts and barons would become quite powerful in their own right, and so a feudal court, such as the Lensgerecht, would be established exclusively for arbitrating feudal disputes, such as those that could emerge between overlords and vassals. It could also serve as a means to protect the overlord from becoming too overbearing in their relationship by forcibly demanding more or by publicly humiliating a vassal. It could also pursue consequences for the vassal if they did not honour the obligation to their overlord. If you were born in a Western European country in the 10th or 11th century, it would have seemed absolutely natural to be invested as an individual into a feudal system. When Charlemagne's great empire was formally separated by the Treaty of Verdun in the year 843, the treaty itself would suggest that every man should have a lord. So even though the treaty itself would be geared towards the resolution of overlordship on a national level by attempting to split the Carolingian Empire up between Charlemagne's three grandsons, it would also be dictating to all of the men of the empire as well. So you could be born into a family whose responsibility it was to work a specific piece of land within the entire land holdings of the lord of a manor. The lord of the manor would be your superior and his only duty to you may be to protect you as a worker of his land. The lord of the manor would give you whatever you needed to live a peaceful life but you certainly wouldn't get any money as you would not be your own man. Instead, you would be somewhat bound to the land that you lived on and this would be your life and you would be grateful for it. 
This was the life of a medieval serf. The lord of the manor would of course have his own overlord and he might be obliged to provide members of his family or agricultural production to a nobleman who in turn would have to provide a seasonal army to his king and his seasonal army may be assembled using the resources of all the manor owners within his county. Even the king himself may be accountable to another king, if that superior king was his legal overlord. So this would support the idea of every man having a lord. When it came to the clergy, they would see the bishops as their lords, and the bishops would see the Pope as their Lord. Then, finally, the Pope and the Emperor would be subservient to their Lord, God. Knights The requirement for competent heavy cavalrymen within the Carolingian Empire would be served well by providing land holdings as a fee to those nobles who were able to produce high-quality heavy cavalrymen to the emperor. The best heavy cavalrymen would be the ones who would have the latest innovations in the field of warrior horsemanship, such as armour, stirrups and weapons, that would all have to be bought and paid for. The best cavalrymen with the best equipment and the best horses were the men that the king would look to reward for their services, and so the notion of the medieval knight was born. The medieval knight would fight on behalf of their feudal lord and be rewarded handsomely. Lords would ceremonially dub their greatest cavalrymen as knights, and over the centuries this ceremony has become known as the accolade. The most common image of someone being dubbed as a knight is the tapping of a ceremonial sword on each shoulder of the knight by the lord. This style of dubbing is still seen today when members of the British royal family dub special individuals as they receive their knighthood. A knighthood in the modern age is simply an award that recognises significant lifetime achievements rather than being an actual military cavalryman. Knights would start out as highly sought after individuals, especially if they were known for their skill. The knight would be rewarded with land and things of value in return for their loyalty and protection. This would make the knight a highly respected individual, entrusted with great responsibility. The greatest knights would be given a political standing within their societies, which would enable them to become highly influential within their societies. This made becoming a knight a highly desirable ambition, and so various noblemen would attempt to achieve the status of a knight and knights themselves would attempt to train their own sons to follow in their footsteps by preparing them during childhood and adolescence to be one of the best knights in the realm. Knights would be expected to protect the interests of the church as well, which would lend itself to the romanticising of what it meant to be a knight. With the church on their side, 
the knight could be portrayed as the noble guardian of good Christian behaviour and the notion of chivalry, but the chivalrous knight might be too much of a romantic notion. Essentially, knights were businessmen, confidently selling their services often to the highest bidder, and chivalry was not an essential qualification in relation to being a gifted warrior horseman. The biggest challenge with feudalism is that it created a society where individuals with resource such as local lords and knights were able to gather more power in the long run than their kings may have preferred. With this wealth they could become very influential in society and they would build great defensive constructions called castles that would morph into great military buildings that would house a palatial complex within its walls. So when a king such as William the Conqueror instigated a culture of royal castle building throughout England, it would be with the understanding that these castles were built with the authorisation of the king and that all other castles should be illegal. Castles would have been springing up everywhere across Central Europe from the 9th century and it was not always in defiance of the king but sometimes just a sensible means of territory defence from the incursions of Magyars, Muslims or Vikings that were attempting to take their piece of Europe from the Frankish rulers. In the earliest decades of East Francia, it became clear that the easternmost reaches of the kingdom were somewhat independent and lacking in support from the royal house. So building their own defences was necessary and the lord of the manor would have absolutely no concern about what his king would say when his lands were under threat from foreign invaders in any case. Bastard Feudalism The essence of feudalism, as it started out, was that the vassal would offer his lord a service, whether military, by council, financial or by supplying resources, and in return he would receive somewhere to live or lands to own and protection. In particular, as medieval times moved forward in England, the kings were clearly producing enough wealth to be able to simply pay their vassals money for services and this enabled the lords to be able to employ the services of specialist individuals such as professional soldiers who were particularly loyal to their lord. This shift in the nature of feudalism was recognised by the British historian Charles Plummer in the 19th century who coined the phrase bastard feudalism to describe this new nature of feudal exchanges. Some historians argue that this is not a good way to describe the change because it has too much of a negative connotation when it was just a simple change of the nature of the system as opposed to an act of corruption. The world was changing and priorities were changing alongside it. There were a number of things that could be dissatisfying about the feudal system, especially as it empowered the vassals and the lords of the manors much more than would have been ideal for many monarchs. 
Two of England's most famous historical documents were linked to the consequences of the feudal system. The Doomsday Book was compiled by William the Conqueror following his redistribution of English lands to those who had become his vassals by assisting his invasion of England around 20 years earlier. It was William's way of knowing exactly who owned what in his new realm. The other document is the Magna Carta, which was a legal document between the King of England and his barons, which was instigated by the powerful barons of King John's kingdom, which was documented around 150 years after the Norman conquest of England. This represents an example of when public loyalties could easily sway towards the barons who had become wealthy and powerful thanks to the feudal system. As the medieval period reached its later decades, the merchant classes started becoming more wealthy as trade opportunities started becoming more and more exotic and the power of cash over produce started to escalate. So vassals such as lords and barons started demanding money in return for favours and this is where the culture termed as bastard feudalism started becoming more prominent. However, neither barons nor kings could accumulate considerable wealth now without expert travelling merchants and so there was a shift in value from the medieval knight to the modern explorer which symbolised a huge change in culture of Western Europe and that meant that feudalism in its purest form was becoming somewhat obsolete. Kings would find it much more financially viable and prudent in terms of national security to construct private armies loyal to the crown and therefore taking the power away from the greedy lords and barons. The king would still need his lords and barons, but they would have less ability to hold the king to ransom. We also talked about serfdom earlier in the episode, whereby a man and his family would become tied to the estates of the manor for life. With the distribution of wealth came the enhanced use of coinage in society, and so a serf could save money and then potentially buy his freedom. Another critical factor which changed the entire nature of medieval Europe was the devastating Black Death, which was a wave of the bubonic plague that swept through Europe during the 14th century and which surpassed the plague of Justinian in terms of deadliness. It killed around half of the population. This caused a great shortage in manpower in all classes and on all manorial estates, making the feudal system ineffective in many places. So the devastation of the population and the popularity of cash as a form of service were two of the greatest factors that influenced the change in society from feudal-style arrangements. By the 16th century, feudalism had become unusual. The merchant classes started having more financial influence on society 
and kings would use money to pay their soldiers directly as a private army, meaning that they didn't have to rely on the barons for manpower. Feudal agreements continued to exist in France up until the French Revolution in the 18th century, but they were much more of a rarity in society than during the medieval period. In the modern world, we see political commentators make reference to the fact that their societies are edging back from less of a capitalistic society to more of a feudal society, and this has been said of the United States. This means that there is a belief that the poorer classes of society are becoming more open to bespoke legal agreements from the wealthy. This kind of politics in the modern world is referred to as neo-feudalism. As we started this episode referring to the Far East, we should return there by demonstrating that the last major stronghold of a feudal society in a traditional sense may very well be Japan. The shogunates who took control of the country from the 12th century would distribute lands and this arrangement would be dominant until the turn of the 17th century. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about this very mysterious subject of feudalism. On one hand, very simple, but on the other hand, quite complicated. And uh, But it really is the backbone of uh, European societies and especially those where monasticism uh, flourished and also the home of where the Crusaders were to emanate from. And it, so it's very much this feudalist, this feudalistic lifestyle and culture lent itself to the uh, to the to the nature of the crusades and how that all came about and we're going to be exploring that in over the next few weeks uh, the the actual crusades themselves so quite an important aspect of medieval society and well worth exploring and so hopefully we've got a little bit more knowledge um, in our minds when it comes to evaluating everything that's going on during this period Thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, we, uh, If you enjoy the podcast, if you really enjoy the podcast, then why not consider supporting the podcast? Simply go to the Patreon page and, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. I'll give all, give all sorts of rewards out to people who do that. And uh, if you cl- accumulate uh, particular amounts, you can qualify for rewards, mugs, T-shirts, gift packs, and... Um, the uh the, the right to actually commission your own special episode as well so you can uh qualify for that and um, if you don't know how to find a patreon page just go to the history of the world podcast.com website uh where you can explore all sorts of things social media etc etc and um and then you can click on the patreon link at the top of the page and then just go through and and consider uh consider helping and supporting the project um when you do that, you become automatically a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And uh, this week, we welcome into the uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati, uh, David and Thomas Shea. So thank you to you both. And you are now li- lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And thank you so much for your support. The Ancient World Cup.
So, the Ancient World Cup. Here we took 64 ancient uh, World Cup teams uh, that were represented by nations and cultures from the ancient world and we put them all into a competition. It was a kind of knockout competition where uh, the Listener of the World podcast uh, listeners, the Hot Worlders, as we call you, voted on all of our different social media streams. It will be the Tapper Talk discussion forum, the Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, uh, Twitter and Instagram. So those of you who voted, all your votes were counted up. And this week's match, which was a second round match uh, between the uh, the Han China uh, dynasty, uh, the Han dynasty um of China and the Mycenaeans and um, let's have a look and see what the result was of that one Uh, the winners this week with a uh, percentage of 71% of the vote so quite a quite a decisive victory with the Mycenaeans of ancient Greece so uh, they've gone through to the next round and uh, Han China unfortunately have been knocked out. So um, good effort, but got through the group stage into the knockout stages, but unfortunately the journey ends here for them. Uh, Next week um, will be match 14 of the round of 32, and it will decide who the Mycenaeans will go on to play in the round of 16. And so next week's match will be with the Olmecs of uh, Mesoamerica, uh, the culture who are responsible for those incredibly uh, big, ugly heads that were uh, constructed um, maybe over th- maybe over three thousand years ago, and um, the ones who we um, believe may have been the instigators of the ball games of Mesoamerica, those famous ball games of uh, of the many cultures that uh, followed them, and they will be going up against the Athenians, who uh, you know. What else could we say about the Athenians other than they may have been the uh, the originators of democracy and uh, certainly a very highly influential culture uh, that put ancient Greece on the map and uh, between them and the Spartans gave us so many incredible stories um, from uh, the ancient Greek era. So it's the Olmecs versus the Athenians next week. Take a look at your social media feeds for the History of the World podcast from Monday. Listener messages and reviews. Linda from near Tel Aviv in Israel wrote in to say, Hi, I just wanted to let you know that I've only re- very recently discovered your podcast and I'm listening currently to the first volume going on to part seven. I'm intrigued and excited by the information and by the way that you present it. I've never been a history person, but after returning again from Athens a week ago, I found myself needing to somehow investigate the ancient world. This combined with the questions about my personal background led me to your podcast and I am trapped. I listen to you now uh, every day on my way to work and back and although it's early days I must say that I suddenly look forward to going to work. I love the way that you present the podcast, your humour and light-heartedness and I really hope that I will continue on this long enthralling journey with you. Thank you for making this available. I'm loving it. Um, well, thank you very much, Linda. It's always uh, wonderful to receive such messages. I've see, received a lot of messages over the years regarding this podcast, um, but each new one that I receive, I, I receive with just as much warmth and 
Goodwill was as the very first one that I ever received. So they all mean so much to me. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, we did get a review this week um, from uh, HKL456 um, from the USA, from the United States of America. But monasticism, I was disappointed that so little attention was given to female monastic orders and their unique contributions to Western history and society, specifically the teaching and nursing orders that contributed significantly to the idea of public schools for all and public hospitals. There was also no mention of the desert mothers. So the story as tall as tall, the story as tall, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that means. The story seems like a very male story when in truth, that's not quite the case. Um, yeah, I think that's a very fair point. We, we didn't focus much on female monastic orders um, at all did we in that episode and maybe there is therefore scope for us to explore that in a, in a future episode so uh, thank you very much for making such a valid point there obviously we, we did cover monasticism we and, and it was, I mean I think if we was to cover the entirety of monasticism we we didn't do a lot of things justice so there was there was no no nothing really um there's no thought really went into Eastern monasticism. We really just touched upon it briefly. And I think it's because we're really introducing it as part of the story of the evolution of um, the Franks and um, and uh, Western Europe in the medieval period. And I think uh, maybe that's why we centred monasticism really around all of those aspects of feudalism and and the evolution of the the Holy Roman Empire. So, yeah, maybe that's my excuse, but I think it's a a good point, well made, and and very valid, and something that's going to give me some food for thought in terms of planning future episodes. So thank you very much for that feedback. Anyway, that's it for another week. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Next week, we're going to be looking uh, at uh, the Crusades, I believe, yeah. Yeah, we're going to be looking at the Crusades into the Holy Land and um, exploring how and why the first Crusade ever took place. Uh, so this will introduce a series of episodes relating to um, the politics of uh, the Levant um, and uh, what would be the, the home of the Crusades, really, the, the, the Holy Land. Um, until then, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.